Another pattern that we found, again, by looking at the uh, geographic locations of these sites, were that many of them were aligned with each other on a particular bearing or azimuth. Uh, so if you plot the location of one site and then another site and draw a line between them, the angle points to a place on the horizon where you will have uh, a solstice sunrise or a solstice sunset, or perhaps if it's oriented east-west, it would be an equinox sunrise and sunset along that bearing. So we started seeing these dozens of sites connecting in a way that aligned with the solstices, uh, longest and shortest days of the year. Bushwhacks were some of uh, the worst days I've ever had in the mountains, or life, really. I, and I tell people all the time, never underestimate the Catskills. You, know, you can't underestimate them. Why the Catskills is such a great place for trout. It was really the development of New York State. Catskills were responsible. Now you're listening to Inside the Line, the Catskills. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. Full disclosure, this episode had some weird microphone problems later on in the episode, but uh, we fixed it up, we jumped right back into what we were talking about, and it turned out to be a great episode about Native American culture and the Catskills. So, thank you for listening. And Happy New Year. So excellent. Happy, happy New Year, Glenn. Uh, glad you can join me on the show. Happy to be here with you, Stash. Um, happy holidays. Happy holidays. So what did you get for Christmas? Anything special? Well, we actually we do we do both uh, Hanukkah and Christmas. So, and, and both my kids' birthdays are in November and December. So it's kind of like a marathon from Halloween to the end of the year. For Christmas, what did I... We got a big screen TV for the family. Oh. So... You know, one of those 60-inch things that take up half of the living room. Yeah, yeah. Remember, uh, you know, I was I was talking to somebody the, the other day that I got a 32-inch screen TV when I moved back here from Arizona. Uh, what was it? Uh, like 2003, and it was uh, $300. Yeah, I, I bought a, a Sony Trinitron in 1999, right before the turn of the century. I'm dating myself. With one of those like three inch glass screens, the thing probably weighed, I don't know, I think when we took it to the dump, it probably weighed at least 300 pounds. Oh, it was 32 inches, and I think it cost almost $500. Wow. All right. I got the 60 inch one for under 250. <laughs> yep. Right. The crazy, crazy changing of times is it's insane. Well, and the weird thing is, I ordered it online. And some guy in an SUV pulled up the next day, like less than 24 hours later and left it on my deck. So that's the world we live in. Incredible. <laughs> Incredible. Um, I actually uh, got a, a lot of books this, this holiday. My mom got me a lot of different books. You know, I got three new books that I'm awaiting too. So the, the first book I got was Last of the Handmade Dams. Uh, story about the Ashokan Reservoir by Bob Studing. I love Bob's stuff. Bob Studing writes amazing stuff. You've probably heard of him. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Yes, of course. Um, the Catskill Mountain House by Ronald Van Zant. I think that's how you say it. Zant. Okay, yeah, I, I'm familiar with the book. 
Definitely can't wait to dig into that one. And the one that I'm digging in right now is uh, 19 Reservoirs by Lucy Sante. Wow. So you are a real history aficionado here in the Catskills. Uh, to have those books on your nightstand tells me something. I'm get I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Trust me. The history blows my mind every time. Like tonight, I you don't know. I, you could ask my wife. I wish my wife was here. How much I've been like looking forward to talking about this because I've seen them all over the place. I think I have. <laughs> but uh, two more books that I'm getting that I have on order are Manitou: The Sacred Landscape of New England's Native Civilizations by James Maver. Maver, yeah. Maver. Um, sorry about that. And Ceremonial Stonework, The Enduring Native American Presence on the Land by Markham Starr, right? Uh, Yep, both wonderful books. Manitou is kind of the, uh, you know, in some ways the Bible in the industry of ceremonial stone landscapes. A lot of uh, researchers wandering the woods for many years with, you know, dog-eared copies of that book. Um, James Maver and Byron Dix, his co-author, that was a very groundbreaking study when that came out, I believe, in the late 1980s. Uh, and they were now lightweights. I mean, James Maver, I don't know if you know the background. He was a naval architect at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. He was the co-inventor of the Alvin submersible submarine. Wow. Byron Dix was a uh, optics engineer for NASA. I believe he did work with Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So these guys were no lightweights, and they um, were members of NERA, the New England Antiquities Research Association, which still exists. Uh, it's been around since the early 60s. Uh, I was lucky enough to, uh, honored enough to have served two terms as their vice president nice. about 10 years ago. But those guys really made the case that Native Americans built with stone in the Northeast because that was a case that needed to be made. Uh, the academics and and the historians don't really recognize Native American populations in uh, Northeast America with having built in stone, aligned any of their constructions with events in the sky. It just was not a thing. And they, uh, Maver and Dix, went, uh, went around proving that it was a thing and that it needed to be studied seriously and taken seriously by academics. So they, they, um, you know, they very much inspirational to a lot of researchers who are documenting these uh, ceremonial stone landscapes that we find in our, in in many cases, in our own backyard. Exactly. And that's why I have you here tonight, um, you know, um, to talk about ceremonial stone landscapes or CSLs or Cairns, like massive Cairns that we we see it's most of us where some of us do off trail stuff. You might see some of these and you might not even know that they, they are, were a native American like arch, like a, a, a landscape. It was just, it, it's, it's phenomenal stuff and I can't wait to dig into it. So Glenn, thank you for joining us tonight. Well, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So welcome to, this is episode 60 of inside the line, the Catskills. Um, Glenn is here with me tonight. We're going to talk about ceremonial landscape sculptures built by the native americans uh we're gonna go over some deep history of some native american stuff so can't wait to definitely talk about it thank you to the monthly supporter darren white vicky ferrer john comiskey jim c michael bongner david mead matt smith and sharon klein thank you guys very much for donating to the show um a big thank you to outdoor chronicles for being sponsor of the show molly thank you so much Molly from Outdoors Chronicles Photography specializes in adventure elopement and adventure couple photography in the Catskills, Adirondacks, and the White Mountains. Don't forget your pets, though. They are just as important. 
She is also an officiant for getting married and also a licensed guide. So don't hesitate to get a hold of Molly on all platforms. Thank you very much, Molly. Tracy Rankin, thank you for donating five coffees. Uh, she said, happy holidays, Stash. Thanks for the informative podcast, fun guest, and cool history tidbits. I love listening, even though you hate Dirty Dancing. Sorry, I don't like the movie Dirty Dancing. Glenn, are you a fan of that movie? Uh, not particularly. Thank you. <laughs> God, thank you. Right? It's, it does, it's just, uh, it's I mean, just I, weird. I, 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 I guess I can see the entertainment value in it for some people who that's their thing. But, uh, you know, not, not so much me. Yeah. Like, like I couldn't understand a 50 year old guy or, I mean, at the time he was probably like 30 something going after a, a girl that was, you know, in a, in a Jewish resort, uh, dancing and stuff like that. It was just really weird to me. Uh, definitely a different time. <laughs> yes, definitely. Definitely. So you having anything to drink tonight, Glenn, anything on the table? No, nothing, nothing, um, you know, alcoholic. I, I uh, might, you know, sip a little lemonade along the line, but to nice. uh, quench my thirst. How about you? What do you got going on? Uh, I got a Rev Spirits from from Stanford and a ginger ale going on. Rev Spirits is, is a local honey uh, made area from or from Jefferson, New York. So try to plug all the local stuff in. Do you have a favorite local uh, beer or and or spirit that you would like to mention? Well, I am a fan and frequent uh, the West Kill Brewery there in Spruceton Valley. Uh, there is an amazing ceremonial landscape in Spruceton Valley that we visit yearly, um, camp at sometimes, and uh, either going to or leaving, we pop in at West Kill, and they always have, I'm not a beer drinker, but they do have unusual different things to try. So yeah, I'm you know, a little adventurous in that regard. Definitely. I agree with you on that one. And uh, you know, they recently got food, which makes everything's so much better now. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you say that because I, one of the big things I used to go there for were their food trucks. And mm -hmm. I know they do have great, um, you know, when they started out before the pandemic, um, they did have wonderful in-house food, local meats and cheeses and things like that you could order. And then they went all food truck during the uh, pandemic, which was a smart move. And now they are back to, um, you know, cooking their food there. But uh, some of those food trucks were amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I agree. I, I, you know, I started going there way back when it was first starting and they didn't have any food at all, but like pretzels and chips, I think. <laughs> so after coming off, you know, like a 12 mile hike going over West Kill, bushwhacking and stuff like that, I need some food in me uh, besides alcohol. I love alcohol, but um, I needed some food. So like going there, I'd just be like, oh man, I'm going to have to get like four of these pretzels to fill me up. One, one of my, uh, one of my favorite places in the Catskills is back there in Spruce and Valley, for sure. Oh, God. Beautiful spot. Beautiful spot. I got to agree with you on that one. So, Catskill News, uh, volunteer once again. Once again, we got uh, up in the spring. It's probably going to be the volunteer time for any any volunteer organization that you can get a hold of. Uh, you know, New York, New Jersey Trail Conference is still looking for volunteers around the Catskills. Please check them out. Also, if you are already a volunteer, go to Camp Catskill to get your volunteer hat. They're giving away for free if, if, if you are a volunteer. So, all right, Glenn. So usually I do some Catskill Mountain history. I usually go in to break some history, but tonight we're talking all about history. I usually do a little kind of segment uh, about different parts of the Catskills and history. I love, as you see, I love books. So I dig into a book, I find a spot, I put it in there. But we don't need to tonight because it's all history tonight, correct? I believe that's true. 
<laughs> All right. So let's, how about we skip the history and get on to the guests of the night. Let's go. So um, welcome Glenn Kreisberg of the Overlook Mountain Center. And tonight we're going to talk about ceremonial landscape sculpture. So welcome to the show, Glenn. Uh, good to be here. Thanks. Yeah. Um, Glenn, so how about a little background about yourself uh, real quickly and we'll get on with the, the interview. Sure. Um, I grew up right uh, in the Catskills in Woodstock, New York, probably most famous small town in the world. Uh, kind of remember it. Uh, you know, I'm dating myself, but, you know, I was I was a kid when the concert happened and I worked in a bookstore there on the village green as a young adult called Three Geese in Flight, which was kind of a antiqu antiquarian bookstore. You would love this. They sold, you know, uh, rare uh, books on Celtic mythology, on uh, world mythology, on Native American folklore, just, you know, a, a very kind of um, esoteric mis mix of, of titles and subjects, Arthurian legend, you know, things along that line uh, intrigued me. And that's kind of how I got exposed to, um, you know, world cultures and different mythologies. In, in, in my day job, I'm a, a radio frequency engineer, so I, I helped design the network that we all use to share our important information, store it, and access it when we need it. And I sat on a committee in Woodstock for citing a cell tower. This was uh, probably at least 15 years ago now. And there were folks there who were talking at the public hearing about some of these stone formations that were in the woods that they were concerned about, that they, you know, they might be something important that shouldn't be disturbed or destroyed. Uh, who came in to testify were the archaeologists for the state, uh, from the museum, um, the archaeologists hired by the cell tower developer, uh, and they all said, no, nothing here. This is all kind of dime a dozen, um, you know, um, early American stonework. You see it everywhere. And, you know, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. But then there were other people who testified, some folks from NERA, uh, the group I mentioned earlier. Uh, who said, no, some of these actually might be ceremonial landscapes and what they called Manitou Hanasach, which is spirit stones in Algonquin. And they said that these stones might have meaning to Native American people who should be uh, consulted. So I said, oh, wow, that's that's really cool. Right here in our woods, we've got these potentially ancient stone formations that are being dismissed by the academics and the and the authorities as, as nothing special, yet there are people who seem to think that they're very special. And that there might be some deeper meaning to them, um, other than just a stone wall. Now, I've been a licensed outdoor guide in New York State, the DEC, since 1990. And I have spent a lot of time in the woods. And anybody who walks around in the woods, on trail or off trail in the Catskills, going to come across unusual stone objects, um, cellar holes, walls, unusual boulders propped up, piles of, of stones just stacked neatly together. And these things are all over the Catskills, as it turns out. And some of them very definitely are related to early, uh, native, uh, early, uh, you know, settlers, early American and colonial activity, a lot of which did take place in the valleys and the mountains of the Catskills. So, you know, you've got very definitely, uh, definitely a cultural footprint from the original people, uh, who were on the land, the Native Americans who inhabited it for at least 10,000 years before the Europeans arrived, and there's no way they didn't put a cultural footprint on the land. And then you had, you know, the influx of Europeans who put their own footprint on the landscape 
And they, uh, you know, with care, careful discerning and observing, you can find patterns and understand um, the differences. So, and if you talk to the Native Americans, now more than 10 or 20 years ago, but now they will open about, up, open up about these Manitou, uh, Hasanach, these spirit stone sites. Um, they may not open up entirely, but they're realizing to help protect them from the overdevelopment. They need partnerships with, you know, as, as, uh, Doug Harris, who is the tribal, retired now, uh, tribal preservation officer for the Narragansett. He said, there's more of you than there are of us. So we need your help to help protect these. Um, so they were willing to, um, you know, come out, survey these and, uh, as we came across them and as they were threatened and help us make a determination. Um, but it's still an ongoing battle. They're still not fully accepted by the state archaeologists or, or local Sunni archaeologists. You know, they, they still are resistant to fully accept the concept of ceremonial stone landscapes. Wow. That's, that's unbelievable. So you've been a native here to the Catskills for your whole life. I did. I, I, I was, well, I was born in Miami, but when I was six months old, my dad took a job in Kingston. So we lived and moved to Woodstock. Wow. Went to Ontario High School and, you know. You, you've loved the place ever since, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I've moved away a few times. I always end up moving back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's always a catch. Catskills are always a catch. So a big, you know, I've always, I've talked about this a couple of times in the previous episodes about how Native Americans uh, and their and their culture in the Catskills is very vague in, in the in the Catskills. There's not a lot of information. Could you give us a little background about Native American the Catskills? I know they were very smart. Um, the the Americans weren't very smart and they tried to build on the top of the mountains. But I know that the, the Native Americans like to stay in the valleys. They like to stay where the sun grows to grow their crops and stuff like that. Any other stuff you can throw in about Native Americans in the Catskills? Well. The Catskills were in some way a border region for different uh, tribal groups. Uh, to the south, you had the um, Lenape, Delaware, and Asopus, uh, Algonquin-speaking uh, groups. Um, to the north and east, you had uh, Iroquois Haudenosaunee, the um, uh, five nations, six nations, once the Tuscarora migrated from the south. And among the uh, Haudenosaunee you had on the uh, east were the Seneca, uh, excuse me, the Mohawk were the keepers of the eastern door, and the Seneca, I believe, were the keepers of the western door. The Onondaga were the keepers of the fire, and they were in the middle. So, yes, when Europeans arrived in New York State and in the Catskills, um, and, and I just should continue, to the east you had the Mohican, uh, mm-hmm. who, were, who were not part of the Haudenosaunee or Iroquois nation. Um, so yeah, there was a, a bit of a border region. And when the Europeans arrived, the Iroquois Confederacy really had a very strong political power base in what, what we know now as New York, more so than to the east in what became known as New England, because there were much greater populations of Europeans who were flowing into those, uh, those regions. New York was a little bit further inland. So early on, and also because of the presence of the Iroquois and their strong political influence, um, there were very few uh, Europeans. In fact, in, in I think in 17, prior to the Civil War, excuse me, prior to the Revolutionary War, there were only about 310,000 Europeans living in what we would call New York State. And by 1810, there were over 3 million. Wow. So the Revolutionary War actually had a tremendous impact on native populations in our region, 
Um, in some cases, depending on which side the tribes took, whether they were on the side of the British or the side of the, uh, you know, Americans, um, the outcomes were very different. But, uh, a lot, a lot of people don't realize how what, you know, um, American freedom, independence from England meant one thing for settlers and meant something very, very different for the Native Americans. Uh, in the view of the Native Americans, they probably would have made out much better if, um, England had won that war. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a lot of the promises that were made by the American side to the natives for them to be allies were quickly broken after the, uh, you know, after America was formed. Yeah. So they got a very bad deal. They were pushed out. Um, their sacred lands were quickly, um, taken over, bought and sold by land speculators. And it was really kind of an ugly mess. So, but, you know, for 10,000 years, these tribes lived in the region in places like Kingston or Wappingers. You had sedentary populations. You know, they say that the early uh, Native American populations were very primitive and, and um, not very sophisticated or developed because they were so transient and they never stayed in one place very long to develop what Europeans would consider to be a civilization. And again, Manitou, the sacred landscape of New England's native civilization. That in itself, you know, the title of the book is a bit controversial because there are academics who will argue that, no, it does not meet the qualification of a civilization. Um, but areas like Kingston, where you had a confluence of travel corridors and an abundance of resources, there was no need for them to travel and move to other areas. They could fish the rivers. They could hunt the highlands. They developed um, settlements that were permanent. Uh, and for 10,000 years, they inhabited those locations and, and developed culture that was sophisticated, that did include um, studying the sky, uh, astronomy, making measurements, marking and creating monuments that memorialized these you know, special days and events on the calendar. Uh, we're all tracked by the heavens. So they did have a sophisticated worldview, in, ma in many ways more sophisticated than the European or even the modern worldview, because um, ours is very one-dimensional. We think about where, you know, the, the plane of the living and just kind of everything in the material world. And the Native Americans, you know, much more had a three-dimensional worldview where things that happened in the sky world or the underworld would influence yeah. their, their daily, uh, you know, comings and goings and tasks. So it was much more integrated, uh, as was nature. You know, they had a very profound and intimate relationship with nature that we no oh, longer yeah. possess. So. Definitely. Wow. Um, now, the the history of, of the Native American Catskills is, is like is is so small. Um, why do you think it, it's so small in the Catskills? It's just was there just not a lot going on, or there wasn't a lot that was kind of like uh, written down or taken taken note of. This uh, being Native American history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well. You know, I think a lot of activity did go on. I don't think that they ventured high onto the mountains. Yeah. Uh, I think they went up onto the lower slopes, um, created autumnal hunting camps where they processed deer, um, deer and game for the winter, um, hides and, and, and meat. And that was a, uh, you know, a pretty regular occurrence, but you know, nothing the Native Americans did didn't have a spiritual component to it, whether it was hunting, whether it was agriculture, whether it was building their homes. Uh, whether it was just traveling across the landscape, there was very much a spiritual connection to it because through what anthropologists would call agency, they would put 
um, life, you know, into inanimate objects, into a, a, a boulder or a cliff or, you know, a pond, they would see a living creature, a living force of, of nature, which it really is. And, yeah. and they would, you know, honor it and give it the due respect that, um, you know, the Europeans didn't really recognize and really trampled over. And yeah. I would say it's a bit of an, an, a, a convenient untruth that there was not a large population or civilization here when the Europeans arrived. Yes, a lot of it had been decimated by disease. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, the arrival of the Europeans marked the beginning of a dark age for Native Americans. Hopefully now we're moving more into, uh, you know, like the beginning of their Renaissance period and, and the yeah. age of enlightenment where they're going to be able to thrive and flourish after being kept oppressed for hundreds and hundreds of years by the Europeans who arrived and really were, had one thing on their mind, conquest. Yeah. Wow. That, uh, that definitely explains a lot is just, you know, they were kind of like, I wouldn't say like flushed out. It's just, uh, they were bribed a little bit too much <laughs> to, for their, their area and that when we pushed them out we really didn't care so that really sucks because <laughs> this hearing about this native american culture in the catskills really is, is fascinating i don't know why i just had a uh a person on a couple episodes ago talking about the uh the beaverkill valley and the willowemack valley and that was that was phenomenal with native american stuff because that was a place they cherished and stuff like that because of the the rivers the fish the the game there was was very very big to them there oh absolutely and those are interesting areas um yeah actually i looked at your podcast on the willowneck area because that's kind of you know not that's not a lot, not on a lot of people's radar yeah um, in the catskills that that area kind of the western northwestern far reaches but it is a beautiful area you know if you uh, venture through frost valley all the way to the other end or past peekamoose you know coming from shokan and ending up way out by um never sink uh, it's like you pass through a portal in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and, and, um, I'm sure it felt that way to native travelers, uh, going back into ancient times as well. Yeah. So the big, of course, the big top of the night and, and you're kind of like, uh, uh, profession somewhat with, uh, well, actually let me, let me, let, let's back up. So let's talk about, we, we skipped, uh, something. Let's talk about the, the place that you kind of work at, uh, Overlook Mountain Center. Sorry. Oh, sure. Yeah. Overlook Mountain Center is a, a, a small nonprofit in Woodstock that I helped co-found about 10 years ago now. And uh, I don't really, I mean, I work there volunteer. Yep. <laughs> it's okay. not my day job, but um, we run um, uh, hikes and tours and campouts, uh, two different uh, cultural and stone landscapes in the Catskills. Most of them are on uh, public lands, but the Overlook Mountain Center came about because about 10 years ago, um, quite suddenly, about 80 acres on southern, southeastern slopes of Overlook Mountain ended up on the multiple listing service uh, for sale for, you know, uh, three quarters of a million dollars or something. And it turned out that, uh, and it was basically two large lots, about 40 acres each. And one of them had already been uh, proposed as a subdivision many years ago that was thwarted. And everybody kind of figured these 80 acres were safe and already protected, but then suddenly, what do you know, they're for sale. So we didn't want to see them sold to another developer um, or to a few, you know, people with deep pockets that wanted to build McMansions up on the mountain, which mm. is kind of typ- typically what's happened in Woodstock and Overlook Mountain. Yeah. Um, so we organized and, and fundraised and, and 
partnered with a foundation and got the funds to have those uh, parcels purchased so they could be protected in perpetuity and um, and researched. And we did quite a bit of research on the upper parcel, um, the nearly 40 acres that's in Upper Lewis Hollow that is covered with a um, you know ceremonial features that have been recognized by uh, a few different tribes. And and we've partnered with some uh, researchers from uh, Washington University out west and Stony Brook University on Long Island to do some dating of the features there. Um, and we had results coming back uh, proving they're from the uh, 1500s and 1300s, most you know most definitely Native American. And we still have some other features there that are in the process of being dated. And this is a technique of fairly new. I mean, everybody's heard of carbon 14, which goes back uh, you know at least 50 or 70 years. Um, but there's a new type of dating method uh, called optically stimulated luminescence or OSL, and that uh, is well, first for the first time researchers are able to date stone walls, piles of stone, um, stone piles uh, by uh, extracting sediments and stones from beneath the yeah. stones that you are going to date, and then or the structures that you're going to date, and then um, determining when sunlight last shone on the sediments on the minerals in those sediments, things like quartz and feldspar. So they can gather these uh, samples, collect them, and they have to be done in complete darkness. So there's no exposure to the samples uh, to sunlight wow. packaged up in darkness. So these researchers come in and they erect these collection cocoons on top of the collection site, and they go in with red light headlamps, and they spend you know hours in there digging down um, under the stone structure to extract in some cases, stone, because there's two techniques. You can do it to stone or you can do it to sediments and send those back to the lab. And, and about a year later, you get results telling you when sunlight last shone on those sediments. So wow. we did that for a couple of the uh, features in Lewis Hollow and Woodstock and, and got dates that confirmed that they were, in fact, Native American. Wow. That was exciting. I was going to that was a question I, I kind of had later on because I was looking up your research online before and i looked i looked up the luminescence and the quartz deal and stuff like that i had no clue what is about so that 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 definitely explains a lot i'll post in a a link on the show notes of the overlook mountain center and their research they have done on lewis hollow which is a fantastic site hopefully this will make break it down a little bit easier because it, it is tough to explain when when it's just a a sheet of thrown on information but that does explain a lot, Glenn, because I was wondering about the luminescence and the pictures you had of, of of when you guys were digging up the dirt and stuff like that underneath these these ceremonial landscape sculptures. So um, that, that's awesome. Thank you so much for explaining that. That, that, that really helps out. <laughs> yeah, you know, my pleasure. And that's part of what we like to do at, at Overlook Mountain Center is help way, raise awareness about these things because uh, the general public don't generally... You know, it's not really on their radar. I mean, everybody knows about stone walls and, you know, cellar holes. And, you know, they've all seen these things. But there are things out there that are different that fall into a different category. And part of the way we help identify them, and again, this is some of the research that we do um, through Overlook Mountain Center, but also things I've been involved with personally before Overlook Mountain Center, where I've been, you know, recording the locations of these sites throughout the Catskills. There are dozens of them that I've recorded through you know, GPS. So basically I, I created a database where I um, list the site, its location, the GPS coordinates, the features that are found there, um, you know, who, who, who was there when, when we uh, visited it. 
when it was documented and, you know, using software, mapping software and GIS um, methodology, you can plot these things on a map and then you can sort and filter and look at patterns that show you um, concentrations uh, and distribution over the landscape and um, how some of them may in fact align. And that was really a revelation that I had while looking at these things against bird, bird's eye view from the map. Um, where they are all located, they seem to have patterns that are discernible. One of the first patterns that we notice is that many of these ceremonial landscapes are in the hollows. So in Woodstock, you've got Lewis Hollow, but you've also got Mink Hollow, you've got Silver Hollow, you've got Bearsville Hollow, and there are a bunch of other hollows throughout the Catskills that we visited, and each one of them has ceremonial landscapes. Karen's, you know, uh, Manitou Hassanash, the um, piles of stones, effigies that resemble turtles or sometimes serpents, uh, walls that meander, um, and certain boulders that are set up in a particular way. So in in the hollows, we find these sites. And, you know, why would they be in the hollows, you might ask? And it really has to do with the water and where the water comes from. And the headwaters are important. Creeks and streams that flow to the rivers that flow to the ocean. And this was all things that natives were very much in touch with. And they didn't um, mark territorial boundaries the way we do. You know, they definitely had territories, um, but it wasn't as distinct. Like we'll have the river, and on one side of the river is one state, on the other side of the river is the other state. For them, it was all about watersheds, the land connected to the river. And one watershed would flow one way, and another would flow another way. And that may determine a territorial boundary. Um, so we're finding these in, in hollows up high at a certain elevation and hollows have a particular geography and geology, but they are kind of like natural amphitheaters or funnels where the, the rainwater certainly flows down into the creeks and streams. But there's also a lot of fracturing in the bedrock that allows for springs. So another pattern you see is the ceremonial landscapes, not just, uh, up in the hollows, but also where there are springs, specifically where you have water coming out of the ground from the subsurface water, uh, we find places marked with cairns. Uh, a wonderful example of that, not only Lewis Hollow, but up in um, Halcott Mountain on Route 42, yep. where um, heading out towards uh, Spruceton. And it's interesting because Halcott Mountain is just a few miles from Spruceton Valley. Uh, if you know where uh, Spruceton Valley Road is, heading out to West Hill, um, literally just like two miles apart. But the Halcott Mountain ceremonial landscape that is built along the Bushnell Kill, um, and the Bushnell Kill flows out of Halcott and flows down through Bush, Bushnell, uh, Bushnellville. Yep. <laughs> Mouthful, Bushnellville. It is, it is very much. The name of the stream, right. Um, and it flows to Creek, the stuff like that. Uh, yep. Um, flows to the Esopolis, flows to the Hudson, that's one watershed. But if you go just a few miles over that hill, past Halcott and go down into Spruceton, West Kill, the West Kill River, uh, flows to the west, why it's called West Kill, uh, <laughs> where the sun sets. And that flows into the Schoharie, which flows into the Mohawk. So a much different watershed, even though they're just a few miles apart. And and again, the distinction is marked by these ceremonial landscapes. Um, you know, one, in some ways marking boundaries, in some way marking the headwaters of the pure sustenance that came from the spring water you know you know it's what uh, fed their lives in many ways 
So oh, wow. that was one of the, one of the big patterns, uh, hollows and and uh, you know water sources of the water uh, springs and and creeks. Another pattern that we found, again by looking at the uh, geographic locations of these sites, were that many of them were aligned with each other on a particular bearing or azimuth. Uh, so if you plot the location of one site and then another site and draw a line between them, the angle points to a place on the horizon where you will have uh, a solstice sunrise or a solstice sunset, or perhaps if it's oriented east-west, it would be an equinox sunrise and sunset along that bearing. So we started seeing these dozens of sites connecting in a way that aligned with the solstices, uh, longest and shortest days of the year, sunrise and sunset. So this also wow. was something that was very interesting and um, and not unique to the Northeast, just hasn't been well documented. Yeah. And yeah, that's that's what I was uh, going to say. Like, this is not a lot of not Native American stuff in the Northeast hasn't been documented like this. So getting into this and getting this this thoughts and these technologies and people together to to research this stuff is absolutely fascinating. Like my mind is blown right now. So like ceremonial landscape sculpture that has I mean, at first, what I was thinking was uh, that the Native Americans built these for memorials. I'm completely wrong. <laughs> as you can see from from what Glenn has said. Now, I've I noticed uh, on, on certain places, different places, like you said, Hockett. I know there's some on Westkill that look like turtles and stuff like that. Um, really cool stuff. Uh, what is what what are the timelines in theory? What are the timelines of these these cairns when they were created, these ceremonial landscape sculptures? Well, and I, I also I want to uh, offer a disclaimer here that I'm really not speaking in any way for the Native Americans. Okay. I, I know, yep. in, in no way um, do I have the knowledge they have. In no way do I represent them. Um, but I support uh, their beliefs and, and, and their efforts to protect these. And as a state guide and having located many of them, I work with them to show them where they are so that they can make an interpretation. Because nobody other than, you know, recognized Native American tribal member can determine whether something is a ceremonial landscape. Uh, you know, they, they really have to um, be the ones who make that call. I think even the state at this point would not deem something ceremonial and Native American without having somebody from a Native American tribal preservation office um, kind of sign off on that. So that's yeah. that's um, that's important to mention. Um, and also, as a bit of a, I don't want to say disclaimer, but as an acknowledgement, and it's always good to do this, um, you know, all the land in New York State and in America, whether it's private or public, whether it's state or federal, was and still is ancestral lands of Native indigenous people who, in many cases, had it taken from them uh, against their will um, mm. and lost, you know, ceded control without consent. So um, it's important to recognize that. Uh, now, back to what you were asking. I'm sorry. I got no, no, no. Perfect. Uh, Thank you for doing that. And, 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 and what I was going to add to that is that some of these, in fact, may be memorials. Um, they do serve practical purposes as calendars and compasses uh, in many ways, um, but that does not, uh, you know, it's not mutually exclusive. They can also be potentially memorials, not not necessarily burials, but I don't think that should be ruled out either because there mm -hmm. has not been enough research. And there have been anecdotal um, stories um, from Native Americans who have said that, in fact, some of these are, are um, you know, building cairns or building piles of stones over the deceased 
uh, place of resting is a practice that was carried out. So it can't be can't be, can't be and shouldn't be dismissed. Good, excellent. So the timeline of this, uh, when did you like? Do they have any timelines for this, or is it that just completely? Well, I, like I said, we've done some dating um, in in our area. We came back with dates in the in the thirteen hundreds and fifteen hundreds. But the, when the um, optical stimulated luminescence dating was done, it wasn't just done on Lewis Hollow. So this was a project uh, by NERA, um, New England Antiquities Research Association, who funded the analysis. So you have to collect the samples, and then you have the pay to have the lab and analyze them and give you dates. And that's uh, not always cheap. But uh, NERA had the funds and had over a dozen sites in the Northeast dated, uh, including some in Pennsylvania that came back 500 BC. So, um, you know, wow. uh, 2,500 years ago. The Ulster County Tourism Board put out a pamphlet in 2017 featuring the Halcott Mountain site um, as a place people could visit if they know how to get there. <laughs> this is yeah, not yeah, right. Trail, but it's pretty close to the road if you know where you're going. And in their blurb in that, they said it was a 3,000-year-old Native American site. Where they got that from, I don't know. <laughs> I would love to know. But it's not – you can't rule that out. I actually think some of the things that I've documented could have been built um, because of their location and how they function by the very first people who came to this region. So who were they and when was that? Are we talking 10, 12, 15, 18,000 years ago? Before the end, you know, before the last glacier maximum, during it, uh, just after it, you know, experts will will uh, disagree. But what they will agree on is that the date keeps getting pushed back further and further and further uh, in time. And you know, I, I being more of a speculator and not having to, um, you know, toe the academic line, I tend to think older. Um, you know, uh, what does the evidence support? Which is what the academics will look at. Um, you know. Probably in the thirteen to fourteen thousand years ago, which would put it right at the end of the last ice age. So people came into this area from another region. I tend to think that they were a maritime culture coming from the coast and moving inland, and there's evidence to support that. And if they were coming from other parts of the world, whether it be Northwest Europe, whether it be migrating over from Asia on the other side of our continent, the first people who arrived brought with them, you know, belief systems. They brought with them skills. You know, they were masters of survival at that point. They could live off the land and um, and its bounty, and know you know how to how to uh, hunt and how to harvest and when and where. You know, they, yeah, that was just all very very much second second nature, master survivalists. So they, I think, arrived in our region in the Hudson Valley and the Catskill Mountains, found it abundant with resources. Um, would would uh, as, you know towards the end of the ice age, it may have been you know, uh, a challenging landscape. But if they were coming from regions further north through migration, they probably were moving into areas that were, you know, better, um, yeah. you know, more temperate. So I think they did settle uh, quickly in places where there were um, a lot of resources um, and built up their, their population. Now, you know, there were natural disasters and things that occurred in that time frame that probably, like the Younger Dryas, this, this, impact event that happened at the end of the last ice age that is, um, you know, reported. And, and there's quite a bit of a case that's being made for this to have had happened somewhere in the Northeast, um, which was, a de you know, a devastating blow to any human population that would have been present at the time. Um, but it didn't wipe them out entirely. And they did, as humans do, because we're resilient, 
you know, built back. And, and, um, you know, we see cultures in the middle part of America, like the Adena and the Hopewellian and Mississippian in the valleys, the Ohio Valley and Mississippi Valley that created a monumental, um, culture and landscape, the mound builders, um, mm-hmm. the Adena, you know, 1500, 2000 years ago that rivaled what was, you know, happening in Egypt along the Nile. These were, you know, huge structures from thousands of years ago that supported um, or were supported by large populations, cities that were, you know, at least 20,000 people. So, you know, that's, that's, that's the history of Native Americans in America. It's extensive and it's, and, and, you know, they built up a huge civilization that then through, um, you know, what's known as the Columbian exchange. And it actually happened before Columbus arrived, uh, pathogens and disease and, um, you know, things that really, uh, hit the, the, uh, native populations hard. And really, they are still in many ways just recovering from, um, because of the, uh, you know, double whammy of having the Europeans arrive just after the pathogens and, yeah. and really decimating populations. So, yeah. Wow. 1300 to 3000 years. That's, that's insane. That's just something that blows your mind away. <laughs> so we, we, you were talking about evidence supporting the, uh, ceremonial landscapes. What is uh, your evidence that you, you've guys done? I remember you talked about doing some digging with the dirts and the luminescence and stuff like that. Could you explain that a little, a little bit more? Uh, sure. Well, the, the dating that we did um, up at Lewis Hollow, and again as at other sites throughout New England, um, places like America's Stonehenge, which is up in uh, New Hampshire, used to be called Mystery Hill, very interesting site. Um, a place in Connecticut called Gungee Womp. A bunch of chambers in Massachusetts. Uh, these are these megalithic stone chambers that we have quite a few of in Putnam and Dutchess and northern Westchester County, uh, closer to our region. So the dating uh, that took place took uh, was done in uh, 2019 and 2020, where teams of researchers went out to these sites and extracted or collected samples that could then be dated in the lab. Um, and this was done, again, to determine the last time sunlight shown uh, on the sediments that are below these structures. So if you're dating wow. a stone wall, there is no way for archaeologists or geologists to take a stone and say how, you know, when it was put in that wall. They can mm-hmm. tell you how old the stone is. They can say, well, this is, you know, uh, igneous or this is metamorphic. It came from this period. It's 2.1 million years old or 300 million years old because it's from this level, uh, stratigraphically in the, in the geology, but they can't take a wall, a, a, you know, a stone from the wall and date it. Um, so they're looking to date the construction of the wall. So to do that, you want to look at the materials below that wall that that wall covered up. And as soon as that wall was built, it changed, um, you know, the, the morphology, what's going on in that specific area. So now, so, so, you know, to kind of, uh, not pardon the pun, but to shed a little more light on this, when they collect these samples to be shipped back to the lab for analysis, they insert in the collection site a little dosimeter, a dosimeter that has a little bromide in it. And that bromide starts reacting very differently as soon as it's buried in the collection site. And it, it starts a clock ticking. So they, they, you know, they know the rate of uh, molecular breakdown due to solar radiation of that bromide when it's not buried. Now it's going to be buried for exactly a year. And then it's retrieved and sent back to the lab. And they look at that rate of, you know, uh, radioactive decay and the change in the rate. And they use that to help date and calibrate the date for accuracy. 
So it's very, it's highly technical. Uh, yeah. The study that was done was published in a peer reviewed journal. Um, the arc, the, um, the gentleman who, uh, he's an archaeologist, anthropologist from Washington University. His name is James Feathers. Uh, he was overseeing the project. He's done a lot of OSL dating. He is the one who, um, wrote the paper that was submitted to the geology journal that was accepted and published, um, just a few months ago, actually. And, uh, I can, I can send you a link to that, that Please. you can post so folks can read that, that, uh, that paper. And it is highly technical, but it, it does break down how this OSL, optical stimulated luminescence dating is conducted, how it's uh, determined, the dates. And, um, and, and quite frankly, some archaeologists accept it and some don't, you know, depending on how conservative they are. They may be like, well, it's only been around for 10 years. Uh, you know, come see me when it's been around for 20 years. So they are. And, and of course, what's helping speed that up is corroborating evidence. If you can do OSL dating on a site that's had carbon 14 dating and things line up nicely, then that builds confidence in the OSL dates. Um, so that's the process that's currently taking place. Wow. That is uh, awesome stuff. I mean, that breaks it down really easily to compare to what the research was that I looked up on your site that I was just posting numbers and different pH formats and stuff like that. So thank you. That, that explains a lot. <laughs> so with the, with the Karens, the CS or the CLSs, um, was there any traditions or, or rituals and ceremonies behind these, these sculptures that they did? Well, again, not being native American, yeah. I can't really speak to um, the ceremonial aspect of them. What I can say is that, you know, the native Americans, had a shamanistic practice. So they, uh, shamans being, uh, individuals who are able to communicate with spirits in the other world. Uh, like I said, they had a strong belief in the sky world and the underworld and being able to communicate with the forces that, you know, ex uh, existed in those realms was very important to them and being able to, um, you know, predict and understand that relationship was also very important. So another thing that, again, I could say based on having been at these sites with Native Americans and asking them uh, what they may represent, um, one of the answers I, I uniformly get is that they are a representation of balance and harmony, that uh, this was a very important aspect for living a, um, you know, a fulfilled and satisfying life was to have balance and harmony in your life. And in your existence, and that would not only be balance and harmony with your fellow humans, but balance and harmony with your environment and the landscape and the greater world you lived in. And, um, you know, and that's easy to say, live in balance and harmony, but what does it actually mean? <laughs> you, know, you gotta think about it a little bit. And, yeah. you know, I, I would say, um, you know, you can't have harmony if you don't have balance. So I think balance mm -hmm. comes first. You have balance and you're gonna have harmony. And, you know, literally being out of balance, think about that. If you're walking, standing, to be out of balance, to put yourself out of balance, you have to be leaning very far to one side or the other, you know, to the left or the right or the front or the back. And at some point you reach a point where you have difficulty keeping balance. So what that tells us is to have balance and thus harmony, we have to stay centered. Mm -hmm. We have to not be too extreme in our views and in our positions. Too far to one side or the other, you're out of balance and you're out of harmony with your fellow man, fellow humans, um, and the world around you. 
So um, a big part of these sites and going to them uh, is about renewing and relating to that that balance and harmony that we all need to see. And especially in these this day and age <laughs> where our society is, you know, Lord. everybody probably agrees we need a little more balance and harmony. We definitely do. I agree with that. Wow, that's uh, that's deep. That's some deep stuff. And you know what? You know, a lot of people can, if they, if they know about these places, they can feel that at these these certain places. And I guarantee you, going with with uh, local Native Americans or even just Native Americans in general can feel that when they when they speak about this stuff. Because, like you you just speaking of that to me uh, makes me want to go back and see if I can when I what I can feel when I go to these places. Because I know I know where a lot of these places is. Are and uh, you know I'll I'll talk to you with you after the the podcast about it. So sorry everybody, really sorry about that. So also Glenn, uh, the I remember in in your research uh, the patterns that they had with these uh, ceremonial landscapes that sometimes they would align with astronomy and like you said with the the sunrise sunset summer solstice winter solstice is is that true? That is, and that can be verified objectively um, using tools like Google Earth, you know, the GIS methodology. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's open to interpretation, but it's pretty uh, objective. You know, it is what it is. Um, mm-hmm. either, either it's pointing to a, a certain azimuth or, or a degree on the horizon, or it's not um, at different latitudes. And here we're about 42 degrees north of the equator. So, uh, you know, we have very particular angles to the sun rise and the sun set on the longest and shortest days of the year. And these were the days that were being marked, um, back in ancient times, um, you know, as calendars and, and, uh, yeah. to know when to plant and to understand the cycles of the seasons. Um, you know, they would honor these and of course solstices and equinoxes were probably the first holidays celebrated by humans. Uh, you know, holidays that were being holy days. Um, so uh, these were really important times of the year, and you know we've got so many freaking holidays these days. It's like a yeah, whole calendar is jammed with holidays. But back then they had very few thousands of years ago. The important festivals and dates were all around movements of the sky, uh, the stars and the sun and the moon. And when these things occurred, your recording is weird. I, I can hear you. It just sounds like you're, you're a very far distance away. Uh, well, it's been the way I've been the whole time. Nothing's changed. Oh, interesting. So I can I can try to speak up a little. I don't think I was talking any louder earlier, but hopefully you okay. can hear me. Yeah, yeah. I could I could I could enhance this afterwards. Maybe it'll change by. Uh, but but yeah, keep going on about the uh, the astronomy stuff. Sure. Um, another interesting thing that we found, and this was associated with the Lewis Hollow site. Because early on, we had a, a, a woman, a GIS specialist from the New York State Museum named Susan Sweeney. She came down and she did a, a GPS survey of all the features there and identified dozens of smaller mounds, but only six great cairns. These are giant piles of stone that are between 60 and 100 feet in length, uh, and also a couple of uh, serpent or snake walls. They're also uh, about 80 or 90 feet in length. So... Although there were dozens of objects up on the mountain that she plotted, there were only eight that were extremely large, between 60 and 100 feet in length. And, you know, when you look at these things, you can tell it took a lot of effort, a lot of people, a long time to build these these stone mounds. You really don't see anything similar to them, except maybe in 
northwest megalithic era where you have yeah. these giant uh, cairns. But Susan Sweeney gave me the map of the GPS coordinates to plot. And I had it for about a year before um, somebody suggested that I connect all those large objects together and see if they form a pattern that might um, resemble the constellation, any known constellation. So I was kind of skeptical to this, but I knew that in other areas, um, some constellations had been mapped you know, around the world, not in our area, but places like Angkor Wat in Cambodia, the temples were laid out to match a constellation. Um, uh, others, um, mirrored uh, Scorpio. Um, I think there's one that uh, mirrors the Pleiades, the seven sisters or the six stars mm -hmm. that make up the star cluster. So I said, okay, maybe, you know, maybe there's a chance that this represents something. And I did connect these uh, these eight large objects, six great carrots and two serpent walls. You know, the only logical way you could connect the dots. Um, uh, and it formed kind of an S shape. And when I compared it to the constellations of the Northern Hemisphere, it matched very, very closely to the constellation Draco. And Draco is a circumpolar constellation, uh, which I had never heard of until I started this research. Um, but it turns out it's a very well-known circumpolar constellation that's associated with celestial north, or the place in the sky where the Earth's axis points. And this has been something that was noticed by most ancient cultures, from the ancient Chinese to the ancient Greeks, to the Persians, to the Norse, uh, the Celts, the Greeks, you know, they all noticed the importance of Draco, um, the serpent or the snake uh, um, constellation, because it kind of makes the shape of the snake in the sky. And it always spins around north, never drops below the equator. And when I use some astronomy source software, computer software like Stellarium, and put in the coordinates of the ground features in Lewis Hollow, lo and behold, the astronomy sh software showed that Draco was always in the sky prison above the Lewis Hollow site of Look Mountain. Wow. So this was a confirmation. And, you know, it's like, why would that be? <laughs> um, but it was acting, I believe. Uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons, but for the people who lived in the viewshed of Overlook Mountain, which is quite large, um, anyone who wanted to know where Celestial North is located in the sky just needs to look towards Overlook Mountain. And above it is Celestial North, and where, where the constellation Draco can always be found, uh, circling around um, that point in the heavens that is now marked by the star Polaris, uh, which is the North Star, because it's closest to Celestial North. Again, mm -hmm. the point in the sky where Earth's axis points to. And if you know, um, the Earth's axis is not straight up and down, right? It's tangled at 23. And half degrees kind of goes between 22 and a half and 24 and a half uh, over a long period of time. But it also describes a circle in the sky due to a motion known as precession of the equinox. Um, that makes it so that celestial world is not a fixed point. It wanders. It wanders along the path of this circle that's scribed over a 26,000 year period. So that's known as the precession of the equinox, that cycle. And it's kind of the slowest hand of the celestial clock. If you think of, um, you know, the Earth spinning on its axis as creating uh, night and day, and then the Earth revolving around the sun, creating the years, uh, 
now. There's what the Greeks call the gray hair, which is the 26,000 year cycle of precession. And to the, uh, to the Greeks, and to the Chinese, and to the East Indians, the Vedics, uh, this very much dictated the rise and fall of human consciousness, uh, civilization, and technology. 12,000 years of ascending, and then 12,000 years of descending. And it, it defined the, the ages, old age, silver age, or dumb age, uh, which would line up with this cycle of procession. So really interesting and esoteric kind of information, um, but, uh, but important to know, you know, because if, we, if society, culture does move in these giant cycles, and speed, and it's a time that rise and fall, um, you know, we kind of want to know where our place is in that cycle. Um, yeah. And, and the, the East Indians, the Vedics, did the most, and the Mayans as well, because they had they were very into calendars. Uh, they did the most in defining what these ages were like, what um, humanity was like in a golden age as opposed to a dark age. And and, and there's a 12,000-year uh, period between that dark age and the golden age. You know, which direction are we moving in and which age are we closest to? And the East Indians... Map this out beautifully in what they call the Ubers. I lost you. Oh, there it is. Uh, I'm sorry, can you hear me all right? Yep, yep, yep. I can hear. Okay, I just got a message on my screen about muting. I was like, oh no, I hope I haven't muted this whole time. Um, so, yeah, these cycles of time, and, and um, you know, according to them, we are just coming out of a dark age, and we're just were a thousand years ago, and um, we're moving. We're ascending towards a new golden age 12,000 years from now, according to ancient Vedic uh, East Indian scripture. Um, but we are much closer to the dark age, which defines humanity as very um, you know, shallow, materialistic, um, militaristic, as opposed to being much more um, enlightened and um, involved the other end of the cycle where we're heading. <laughs> Unfortunately, Yeah, right. Wow. That's, uh, that's some powerful stuff. Uh, with with the stars in the sky and stuff like that, I always love astronomy and constellation uh, stuff like that. Especially when when like the Mayans and the Egyptians and stuff like that would create these these sculptures, these iconic figures, these these areas that would align with with the stars and with uh, like you said, solstice at certain times during the year. It's very fascinating stuff. Uh, I'm glad that that it's in the Catskills. That's pretty. That's pretty wicked to say that it's that's here. And you know what? It's but it's not. It shouldn't be that surprising because there is no place around the world, in the U.S. If you go to the, the Midwest, the Southwest, Central America, South America, you yeah. know whether it's the Indians and the Aztecs or the Anastasia or Chaco Canyon or uh, you know or the mound builders, they all did this. So why wouldn't they do it in the Northeast? True. They all True. did. It. Um, so yeah, we were talking about the astronomy constellation. So, um, Glenn, I know we talked about the the books that I had uh, that I purchased about New England. Uh, are there any other places uh, besides in the Catskills or besides the Catskills that you, that you visited, like you said, uh, Mystery Hill and, and New Hampshire and other places, Connecticut, that you find very very well alike to these places in the Catskills? Uh, yes, there are. So when I was with Mira, I'm still a member of Mira. They have two yearly wow. conferences held throughout New England. So sometimes uh, one year it might be Massachusetts, then it might be Maine, it might be New Hampshire. So they kind of rotate around. I think they're having one coming up in um, the spring in 
I want to say, uh, Pennsylvania. So as part of their conferences, they have field trips and you go out and you visit these sites and they have state coordinators. Uh, for each state has a, a state coordinator who puts together uh, the conference in their state and uh, puts together field trips to go see these sites. So, yeah, what you find in the Catskills, you do find throughout uh, New England. It is a, a uh, um, and actually you find it going all the way down to, to Alabama, quite frankly. There's a researcher down there named Harry Holstein, who's with uh, Jacksonville State University, who's been documenting ceremonial landscapes almost identical to what we see here in, in upstate New York, uh, as far as effigies, serpents, turtles, mounds, alignments with the solstices. Uh, and again, this is what helps confirm, because in Alabama, you're going to have a different angle to the sun on the solstice than you would up here. And, you know, that they work here and that they work there, and the angle is different, tells you that they were making adjustments as these as they built these things to account for uh, the changing position of the sun based on their latitude. So um, so we do see it. And Holstein who did quite a bit of research within the academic realm. So he is certainly somebody who would recognize ceremonial stone landscape. And he's worked directly with, with the tribes down there in Alabama. So he considers it a, a pan-Appalachian phenomenon, up and down the Appalachian Mountains, both sides, east and west. You'll find these uh, Native American ceremonial stone landscapes. Nice. Now, I, I remember hearing... Uh, I don't know if it's a myth in Catskill legends that these were placed uh, from Long Island up to the Catskills and beyond. Is that is that somewhat true? I'm guessing that that we just talked to kind of about that that they're located all over the place, but from Long Island up to here, is that kind of like a pattern of navigation for them? Um, I, I'm not sure if I call it a pattern of navigation, although I wouldn't rule that out. But what we have is something that's been well documented uh, called the Hammond Line. And this is a line that comes from a very large monolith out on the end of Long Island called Council Rock, used by the, the uh, Indians of Montauk. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a very large boulder in now it's located in a cemetery um, near Fort Pond, Long Island. And it connects on a perfect winter solstice sunrise, summer solstice sunset angle to the degree uh, with Devil's Tombstone, the large monolith boulder in Stony Clove between Phoenicia and Hunter. <laughs> so um, if you were to talk to geologists, they'll tell you that um, the Devil's Tombstone, uh, and, and everybody probably knows the uh, Casco geologist, um, Robert. Um, uh, oh, God, now I'm speaking. Robert. I, and, and he'll, he'll, Titus, he'll, Robert he'll, Titus. He'll, 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 he'll hate me forever. Now that that's on the podcast, but yes, I'm Bob Titus, and he's he's a friend, and I had to win him over. Um, but Bob <laughs> Titus will tell you, he will tell you, and he was a strict opponent, and still is in most cases of uh, ceremonial landscapes being a thing. He would say these stones were all deposited as they melted out of the glacier, um, although that doesn't really explain neat piles or serpentine walls. But a large boulder like Devil's Tombstone, he will say, slid out of the glacier and just fortuitously impaled itself into the ground perfectly vertically, the way we see it today. Uh, it's a very impressive monolith. And, of course, glaciers did exist in the Catskills at the last glacier maximum, although they did not cover the summits. They did put fingers into the valleys, and they did carry large boulders and tons and tons of soil and lots of uh, smaller stones and debris that, as they melted and receded, were deposited on the ground. 
uh, no question about that. Um, but to see such a large boulder like Devil's Tombstone so perfectly upright, like the one down on Long Island, Council Rock, also perfectly upright, I don't think you can rule out that these things did fall out of the glacier and then at some point in the last 10 or 12,000 years were manipulated by humans to help express their belief system. Now, what you have between the boulder on Long Island, Council Rock, and the Devil's Tombstone that Bob Titus would say fell out of a glacier are many more sites through Connecticut and New York that fall right on this line. Karen sites, uh, Manitou Hanasesh, uh, piles of stones, um, altars, all kinds of unusual sites that once this, sign, this line was established, researchers went out and saw, you know, what can we find along this line? There's a place we can search. And in some places, especially hilltops through Connecticut, hilltop to hilltop, you find these sites that are uh, that have been documented on uh, along this line. Wow. Very particular line, runs at a very particular angle. Uh, now, are there sites that are found off of this line? Yes. Perhaps they line up with other sites, but this particular line runs from Long Island uh, up to the Catskills, and actually you can continue the line, and it goes up, uh, crosses the Susquehanna River, um, south of Lake Oswego, near a very important Native American site called on Goodyear Lake. It's called the Goodyear Lake site. Uh, but it also Ooh, falls right. I live on like right now. I live like 15 minutes away from there. You know, you know where that is. Okay. So no, yeah, I don't, but I, I, I like to know about it. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, Goodyear Lake, right? So of course, if, if you know Goodyear Lake, there are uh, Native American sites that have been documented and associated with that site, um, uh, with that location. So when I saw that it was right on the Hammond Asset line, and again, maybe it's just, you know, coincidence. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, academics, a lot of historians would say, well, it's just fortuitous. It's just a coincidence that these things fall there. Uh, you know, if you have enough of these things, you can cherry pick and draw diamonds and stars and all kinds of things. Um, and I agree. But if you are sensitive to that being a possibility and you want to have, um, you know, your methodology have some integrity, you're going to account for that and not have it be that, uh, you know, somebody can just poke a hole in whatever you're asserting. Um, and let the air out. So I like right. to think that we think a little beyond that. Wow. That is wicked stuff. Cause I, I remember hearing that from, from different people. It's, it's funny how my, a, a lot, some of my friends, the, the old timers in the Catskills that I know, there's like 50% on the traditional native American side. And there's 50% on the, this was done all by the colonial age by, by Americans doing their, their farming and stuff like that. So it's really funny that you, you state that because it's just, it's, it's hilarious. I can't wait to have debates with my friends about this. <laughs> well, here's a fact you can use uh, to help your argument. Um, you can cite an 1880 U.S. census that was conducted, you know, the 1880 census. And as part of that, they did uh, what was called a stone fence survey. So they documented how much stone walls, they called them stone fences back then, were present. In uh, New England, the survey was just in the five New England states, didn't include New York. But just in those states, they documented over 240,000 miles of stone walls. So think about that. That's enough to reach to the moon. Mm -hmm. That's enough stone walls to wrap around the earth 10 times. It's a lot of stone walls. And to suggest that they were all built in a 200-year period between when the settlers arrived and when that 1880 census was conducted, I don't think that's uh, I think that's counterintuitive. I don't think there was enough of a 
wall building population even present to have built 240,000 miles of walls. Because kids aren't building walls, women aren't building walls back then. Uh, so yeah, and old folks aren't building walls. So it's not even the full population that's capable to build walls. Yeah. And um, to build 240,000 miles of walls in two years just does not add up. So um, yeah, <laughs> yes. that's not only counterintuitive, I like to say counterlogical. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So um, I mean, you're talking about Lewis Hollow a lot. I know of a couple other places you talk about the Hockett side. Um, I mean, we don't have to give exact locations, but I know there's a place in, in Westkill, correct, down by Diamond Notch that has these uh, ceremonial landscapes, correct? Uh, yes, I think you're referring to this Brewston Valley site yep. um, along the West Kill, heading up towards Diamond Notch Falls. Uh, there is a site up there. It's actually uh, an old hunter's camp. Oh, wow. You know, not too far off the trail, but you have to know where it is. You're not going to find it. Yep. Uh, we, we don't like divulging the locations because we don't like these sites disturbed. This one is on state land. It is an amazing site in that there are many turtle effigies there. And there's also alignments with this, uh, the um, uh sunset in the west right west kill yep uh, uh flows to the west where the sun sets and as the sun sets in that valley um the light shoots up it and illuminates the features on this site at sunset on the um summer solstice so on the longest day of the year you get a lot of late light uh in that valley and those cairns on their west end have what look like altars um grottos little things that are meant to like capture the light and, and wow. they do. And there are other sites that we have light phenomenon that have been recorded. Um, a really phenomenal site in Platakill, um, south of New Paltz, on a it's called Marlboro Mountain, and the whole site is called Turtle Rock Ridge. There's a giant turtle effigy there that's actually a rock shelter and all kinds of astronomical alignments and um, light phenomenon that occur uh, at sunset on dates like the solstice and the and the equinox. So really fun to be there, fun to record this stuff and see it happen, um, you know, as it's occurring. Yeah. Now, what is the, the talking about the turtles? What did the turtles mean to to the Native Americans? That's a good question because, yep, well, you know, people who are familiar with Native American spirituality, I don't really like to say mythology because, you know, um, I don't think we would like our religions considered mythology. Yep. Although in some cases they are, but I, you know, out of respect, I call this spirituality. And um, it's a very important figure of the turtle in creation myth stories of almost every tribe uh, across North America, which Native Americans refer to as Turtle Island. And Turtle Island gets its name because in the creation myth of nearly every Native American tribe, there's a great flood. And that's not unique to the Native Americans. That's yeah. a worldwide myth. Um, so there's a great flood that encompasses the entire world. And then an animal is sent down by the spirit uh, to gather a clump of earth from the bottom of the water. Sometimes this is a beaver. Sometimes it's a muskrat. Sometimes it's an otter or some other creature that swims in the water, lives in the water, goes down, um, comes back up with a clump of dirt, places it on the back of a turtle, and then repeats that process until land is formed that humans can live on. And that is how the origin of Turtle Island comes from and, and why turtles are such an important part of Native American spirituality and why we shouldn't be surprised at all to find uh, effigies of turtles 
I mean, you can look at these things and it doesn't look like anything but a turtle. Yeah, you know, yeah, you don't definitely. Even, you don't even need somebody to say, what's that look like? It's like, wow, that's a turtle. Yeah. Um, so uh, it shouldn't be so surprising that we find turtles present at Native American ceremonial sites uh, or serpents for that matter. Wow. That is, uh, yeah, that explains a lot because they, I got to admit the the ones that I saw over there definitely resemble a turtle. Um, what about, I know there's, there's some, uh, like once again, we're not going to give a, a, away information, but a, a Shokin high point. I wonder if the ones that I've recently visited are the ones built by the native Americans. Uh, you know, I was only up there once. Uh, somebody else mentioned this to me and I did hike up there. Uh, geez, again, I want to say almost 20 years ago. And, and from what I recall, these would very well, very much fit in the pattern of what we see for ceremonial uh, landscapes. I don't recall if there are walls associated with them. In many cases, we do find both the cairns and the walls associated. Uh, the walls, in some cases, uh, delineate the sacred precinct, you might say. On uh, one side, you will find the cairns and the features. On the other side, you don't. Um, and sometimes there are enclosures that surround them water on one side and walls on, on three other sides. So, you know, um, yeah, that is, that is an aspect that we do see. What about like, uh, is there any other places besides these, uh, their uh, ceremonial landscape sculptures, uh, that were considered native or considered sacred to the native Americans and the Catskills? Well, again, as I mentioned earlier, I think there wasn't anything that the natives did that didn't have a spiritual or a ceremonial component to it. True. So when they traveled the land, um, when they marked their trails, they used Karens. When there was an important event that took place, whether it was a death or a battle, um, maybe a marriage, a birth, um, that could be marked with a with a uh, stone construction um, in honor. I think there were um, votive offerings that were left in a lot of these as part of the ceremonial practice. They'd make a vow to do something or remember somebody or some event um, and then leave an offering. Sometimes something that may not last, um, if it's wood or leather, uh, you know, our climate around here is not very kind, yeah. uh, but we have found stones. We found donation stones, quartzite stones, uh, flint and shirt, uh, cobbles that would be an important resource for tool making that they would leave on these sites, um, I believe, as an offering. So we have seen examples of those, um, as well as some uh, iron oxide or hematite, which is a reddish, iron-rich stone that they used mm. for pigments. And uh, it was actually a, an entire culture in the Northeast, uh, a maritime archaic culture called the Red Paint People that used a lot of this uh, iron oxide and hematite as a ceremonial pigment. Um, they were known as um, red okra. They used in burials and in marking, um, marking objects. Wow. Now, um, with uh this is a question i don't have on there so sorry were like some of the 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 spots around the catskills the towns and stuff were were based upon native americans what what towns were that were like towns like phoenicia and shokin and stuff like that based on the native americans or no um i don't think that they you're well let's just say where the europeans came in and and created things if it was a spot that was a choice location due to the sun that it got um, or close to water, close to resources. If, if the native, if the, uh, Europeans came in and found it to be an important spot, I guarantee you Native Americans are already identified it, you know, generations and generations ago, named it, visited it, 
uh, you know, exploited it for their purposes for, for many centuries uh, prior to European arriving. So, I, you know, the um, I, I wrote a piece several years ago about how the roads of Woodstock are actually laid out um, as a purpose and a calendar uh, with Mill Hill Road winding from the winter solstice to sunrise. In fact, Overlook Mountain Center on you know December 21st, we have an event where we gather at sunrise in the, on the Village Green to see the sun come up aligned with the road, uh, Mill Hill Road. And then Bearsville Platts runs perfectly east-west, so it's an equinox alignment. Rock City Road that runs perfectly north out of the center of town is aligned to due north. So it's interesting that all the roads of the town of Woodstock seem to align with these important bearings on the compass. And I, I think there, it's a pattern. I think of other towns, if you were to look closely, you would see that there are features of these towns that um, that align with with uh, with this phenomenon that I'm, I'm pointing out. Uh, this pattern of of solstices. Now, again, any place the Europeans would find suitable to have a bridge to cross the stream, it was a fording place, most likely, where it was crossed before there was a bridge. By people traveling and trails led to there. Any place we see a current tower farm up on a mountain where there's, you know, a tower or five towers located because it's got a great view shed, mm-hmm. this would a point. This would be a place that the Native Americans probably would have used as a lookout point or a signal point or a silent signal system with fires because it had line of sight to many other locations and they could view and see the coming and going of, of different activities down in the valleys. So. Um, you know, any place there was a, a, a good waterfall where a mill was built, um, this was probably a sacred spot because Native Americans gravitated towards the good energy that was released by waterfalls. Because when water is dropping and cascading, you have um, the release of negative ions, which makes us feel good. Uh, you know, that's just straight up science. Um, so... Um, so, you know, again, any place the Europeans came and said, oh, this is such an amazing spot. Look at the view. Look at the, the you know, resources. Um, it was already something that had been identified and named and, and was important to a culture for a long time. You know, that nothing was new that was valuable that the Europeans came across. Okay. Like, I was just, I was very curious. Of course, uh, like, I, I guarantee something like Big Indian was brought in by colonials and stuff like that but like uh the willow emac and and stuff like that i was wondering if that had uh, native american heritage in it well the names are tricky because um you know we know oneonta is an authentic native american name but Antior, where i live yep uh, Antior, where i went to high school and uh the Antior school district and the Antior club and Antior park and there's a lot of Antiora. according to alf evers it's a made-up you know, just a made-up Indian name that, um, you know, at the end of the 19th century, when the tourism business was very big, it was kind of in fashion to make up uh, Native American-sounding names that were nonsense, really. They were not truly Native American names. So, um, Antioch has no derivation that's been recorded um, having to do with Native American, but it certainly sounds Native American. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, you know, you have to be careful with Native American names. Uh, Evan Pritchard, who's a wonderful Native American scholar, has written um, books on many, many subjects. One of them is called Double Dutch, which is a really fascinating book on language and linguistics and how um, the Dutch in many names, in many cases, um, stole, borrowed, whatever you want to say, Native American place names 
you know, the sound of it, then, then they spelled it phonetically, and it, you know, and, um, like, Hasanash, which means spirit, uh, or, I'm sorry, which means stone, uh, Manitou means spirit, Hasanash means stone, uh, you see, um, a connection to what's a horse head, or horse head road is, um, sometimes associated with these Hasanash, uh, sites, these uh, stone sites. So, um, yeah, there, there is, uh, in a way, I think it's almost like paying homage to the Native American name because the natives named it so well that the Dutch said, well, you know, let's, let's use that. Let's go with that. And yeah. They kind of manipulated it into their own language. Just curious of like, like a Shokin and Shokin, if that was Native I American. Believe those are, I do believe those are authentic Native American. I think Wallonai is also, um, Native American. So, you know, again, you don't want to assume it is, but you can check. And in some cases, yes, they are. Uh, Sweet. And in many, many cases. Crazy. Awesome. Don't, uh, please send me that link on your, your Equinox, uh, uh, pattern in Woodstock. I would love to check that out. Uh, yes, I, I will. Definitely send me links on everything about the cat skills that you have, please. <laughs> also, so we're winding down on stuff. So you're, you're writing a new book. You want to quickly talk about that real quick? Uh, sure. Well, I've got a, a, uh, working title. I'm calling it, it's a mouthful, but, um, Esoteric Apocalypse of Knowledge. What does all that mean? That's kind of a weird name, right? Um, mm. an esoteric means intended for or likely to be understood only by a small number of people with specialized knowledge or interest. An apocalypse actually means a revelation. That which is uncovered comes from the Greek, which, um, the word literally in Greek means to pull the lid off something. So, you know, those familiar with Catskill Mountain lore and legend are probably aware of the tale of Dutch Schultz. Uh, he was the prohibition era gangster, um, said to have buried a safe containing hundreds of thousands of dollars in jewels and cash, and, you know, somewhere along Stony Cove between Phoenicia and Hunter. Have you ever heard of Dutch Schultz or his treasure? Oh, yeah. So, 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 I mean, it's really, um, kind of tale that sparks the imagination, motivates, you know, the more adventurous among us to grab a shovel, head out with a metal detector, and start a uh, true life treasure hunt. But did you know there's an even greater esoteric secret possibly hidden deep within the slopes and valleys and clothes of the Catskill Mountains? And it's a treasure of inestimable value and importance. And it's been searched for by generations of explorers who are always seeking the knowledge to lead them on. And the question is, what do the Knights Templar, Freemasonry, the Ark of the Covenant, the CIA, the Great Pyramid of Giza, Oak Island, the Serpent Mound, the biblical goddess Asherah, and the bloodline of Christ all have in common? And the answer is the Catskill Mountains, and specifically Hunter Mountain and its surroundings. So that's what I'm going to explore in this new book that's coming out. I can't say when, because... Um, I've just actually started this endeavor, um, nice. but I will, you know, work on it and get it out there. And uh, my um, publisher, of course, would be upset if I didn't mention the books that I have, which are Spirits in Stone, which came out in 2019, excuse me, 2018, Decoding the Landscape of Northeast America. And then I have two previous books, which are anthologies, Mysteries of the Ancient Past and Lost Knowledge of the Ancients which really look at um, the evolution of human consciousness, uh, civilization, and technology over great periods of time. 
So if your listeners are interested in those kinds of uh, esoteric subjects, you can check those out. And I always appreciate, um, as does my publisher, an opportunity to mention them. Yes, definitely. I will get links and I will post those links in the show notes of this. Awesome stuff. Uh, Glenn, I thank you so much uh, for joining me tonight and for your knowledge on the Native American heritage and the Catskills. It blows my mind every time I hear something about it. Well, I want to uh, thank you, Stash, for inviting me to do this. And uh, I hope your listeners enjoyed it. And I always uh, like the opportunity to kind of put these out there, these ideas out there, fly them up and see if people, uh, you know, find that they are uh, interesting and worth pursuing. I really hope they are. I, I, I know I am, and I know I'm going to be looking more at your your uh, explorations that you do on the Overlook Mountain Center, and I'm going to definitely join you on one of those. I got to. Got to. So one thing I like to do from uh, my friend Mary Teachreel, I uh, like to suggest, was post-hike brews and brights. Uh, any place uh, suggests local area that you like to, local place, restaurant, uh, brewery that you like to go to to give a shout-out to? What would that be for me? Um, yeah. Huh. I already mentioned Westkill. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, you know, I, 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 I'm at home a lot, but you know, if I'm going to go someplace fancy for an event or an occasion, you know, Pika Moose is always a wonderful restaurant up there on 28 in Shandaken. So I'll, I'll give them a bump out. Hell yeah. They, uh, I've got a lot of them. I haven't gone there there yet because every time I go there, they're, they're closed because of my hours of work, but, uh, Definitely got a lot of them and a lot of Westkill. I'm getting in the process of contacting Mike from Westkill to to have a session with him. So I love that stuff. So excellent. Thank you very much for plugging that in. Um, excellent, Glenn. I, I think that uh, that concludes the night. So um, thank you to the monthly supporters, uh, people who have donated, the monthly sponsor, Outdoor Chronicles Photography. Thank you guys very much for supporting the show. Thank you very much for listening. Uh I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Glenn, for joining me tonight. I had a great time. A lot of knowledge in my head. Can't wait to put more knowledge in my head about the Native Americans and the Catskills. Very good. Thanks for having me. Anytime, Glenn. Uh, have a good night. Happy New Year. Same to you. Yeah, Happy this is... Everyone listening. Have a great 2023. Yes, have a better 2023 than 2022. Keep looking forward. Yes, sir. All right, have a good night, Glenn. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey guys, I just want to thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe and throw down a smooth review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any podcast platform that you use. You can also check daily updates of the podcast, hikes, hiking memes, and local news on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the official website of the show. Remember this, you just keep on living, man. L-I-V-I-N. Wicked, wicked, wicked.